I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. What's the greatest political movie ever? It was a question prompted by a message from Redbox podcast listener Tom Barnaby, who suggested we did an episode on political films. So I turned to readers of the Redbox Morning email and Twitter to ask people to nominate their favourite political films. In only a few hours, we had more than 700 suggestions covering 250 different films. Later in the episode, we'll speak to Kevin Mayer, the Times' chief film critic, and he'll tell us the ones which really are worth watching and the ones that are best avoided. But as we had so many entries, and frankly, we've not got anything else worth doing, we're going to run a World Cup of political films on Twitter. If you're listening to this episode on Friday, March the 27th, from 10am, we will begin the group stages of the top 32 films uh, that you all recommended. Uh, and you can follow its progress throughout the day. Just go to Times Red Box on Twitter, so that's twitter.com forward slash Times Red Box. And you can follow the polls and the contest as it unfolds to see which film comes out on top. But first, because it's Friday, it's time to check in with Redbox reporter Esther Weber, who I haven't seen now for about two weeks. How are you doing, Esther? I'm doing all right, thank you. Last week when we spoke, I was feeling a bit poorly, but I seem to be fine now. So even if I did have something, I think it's passed. Well, there'll definitely be a test to find that out, either in the next day, the next week, the next month, or the next year, depending on which public health body you um, you believe. Uh, and how are you finding? You know, is your is your exercise bike arrived? The rowing machine? No rowing machine. But I, I think we'll stick with the exercise bike for now. Um, but I have to say, it has been an enormous help. I think it's just good to sort of feel like you're doing something with your body apart from sitting around all day staring at a screen I mean I'm not the most kind of fanatical about exercise but I think it really has helped and but I can see exactly what's going to happen which is that if and when this is lifted I'll probably never do it again (laughs) 
<laughs> well, I was thinking about that. So I've at the risk of being all smug because I'll never do this again. Um, I've done a three mile run every day this week. Oh, it's, wow. like, it's the most exercise I think I've ever done. And I did my fastest 5K this morning. Uh, so it's all going very well. But you're totally right. Part of me is thinking, well, when we go back to normal, do I keep this up? Yeah. Or do I just think, yeah, I remember I, when I used to go running. I did notice that since uh, Boris Johnson told us about our one, one allotted exercise session a day, I've noticed a lot more joggers going past the window. Yeah, we're interested to see, will they be there next week? That's the big question. Uh, As you mentioned, Boris Johnson, and this is uh, supposedly a political podcast, we just touch on what has happened in Parliament this week, uh, which is they've all packed up and left. Parliament has officially, they've just, all they've done is they've just broken up for the Easter recess a bit early. In reality, they've packed up for at least four weeks, possibly longer, uh, leaving us with sort of even less in the way of politics to sort of keep an eye on it's bizarre because they were under pressure for a long time to to close down given parliament obviously brings a large number of people who've been traveling around the country into proximity together and the government obviously argued they needed to stay open to pass the key bit of coronavirus legislation this week. And then we had the spectacle of PMQs this week, Jeremy Corbyn's last PMQs. And that was it, basically. It sort of feels like a rather strange and muted end to what has been, by any measure, a, quite a tumultuous time in charge of the Labour Party. Yeah, exactly. The sort of the farewell to Jeremy Corbyn was as low key and uh, uninteresting as so much of his uh, leadership. Uh, and when Boris Johnson tried to say something nice to him and sort of paid tribute, he said, "We might not always agree on things, but you know, no one can doubt your sincerity for trying to do the right things." Completely threw Jeremy Corbyn. Didn't know what to do with that at all. Uh, uh, so Parliament is packed up. I was struck just before it did. Lindsay Hoyle, the Commons Speaker, uh, made a statement in the House talking about the idea of the Commons sort of meeting virtually, yeah. uh, whether it's the, the the Commons Chamber or Select Committee and that sort of thing. And he ended up making an appeal uh, to Downing Street, because apparently Downing Street has got a security licence, which would basically mean the technology was secure for MPs to carry out their business remotely. Downing Street's got a licence and Parliament hasn't. And he was wondering if maybe Downing Street would essentially share their login uh, <laughs> so that they could have a virtual Parliament and virtual sittings um, it would which, seem sensible wouldn't it i mean the fact that we've had virtual committee sittings this week does beg the question of why it hasn't ever been tried before and i think some people will be asking the same questions about electronic voting and other forms of remote working in parliament that we've always been told would bring about the death knell of democracy and yeah, and actually it turns out that when needs must, they can probably make it work. You've been looking at what happened in Parliament the last time the entire world was in the grip of, yeah. a, of, a, of a pandemic. Yeah, because this is the kind of thing I like doing. Um, I, was, <laughs> I was having a look back at the Hansard from 1918 when obviously the world was dealing with uh, another global pandemic in the form of influenza or Spanish flu, as it was known. The main fascinating thing I found was that it didn't really seem to dominate Parliament in the way that coronavirus is doing 
right now. And there were a load of different reasons for that. It was partly to do with the fact that they were still dealing with the end of the First World War and also somewhat different approach to Parliament in general, where it was kind of more of a, a, a gentlemanly approach where people sort of asked their questions, received their answers, and then went away in an orderly fashion to think about it. <laughs> it wasn't the same kind of constant hammering away. So from that, I did a bit more reading about the political climate of the time and it was really interesting to see the extent to which people were kind of basically told to ignore what was going on and that if they paid too much attention or got too frightened uh, it would increase their chances of getting sick <laughs> well that's you know that that's a sort of all yeah um if you were only we were just more positive about yes. the virus it would all go away yeah it really it, that really is what they said and they and a lot of doctors at the time were very critical of the press for supposedly whipping people up into a frenzy about it they didn't even want newspapers to try and report the number of deaths but at the same time, there were local authorities and individual politicians trying to to change the picture and meet the challenge. And that did lead to, for example, the formation of the Department for Health. So it did achieve some good in the end. Did Parliament carry on sitting? I mean, they they were that relaxed about it. Presumably they were all yes. sitting shoulder to shoulder, just carried on as normal. Yep, there was no change in that sense. Lloyd George actually got it himself at one point, and he converted the whole of the front of Manchester Town Hall into a kind of infirmary for his convalescence. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, we look forward to Boris Johnson doing similar and everyone thinking that that was absolutely fine. You've written about that for the Red Box email um, out today, Friday, so people can read more on that either in the email or on thetimes.co.uk. Just finally, before we move on and speak to Kevin Mayer, we're talking political films. Have you got a favourite political film? Uh, so I thought of a couple. I think one of them has come up quite a lot, and that is In the Loop. It's obviously a brilliant film from Armando Iannucci and the whole thick of it, stable. I think the bit I really, one of my favourite things about that film is not only all the stuff when they're in America and they're trying to haphazardly blunder into this war scenario but I love the fact that while all this is going on the main minister in question is also having to deal with constituency issues yeah absolutely uh, yeah, and yeah, like yeah. someone's got a wall which is falling <laughs> down and that is just perfect it's the best summation of the sort of madness and brilliance of British parliamentary system that you, I think I've ever seen in any sort of form of drama. The, the, literally, I think I was at one point having sort of two phones on the go. One is, you know, the Pentagon yeah. while he's in the hall, in a sort of village hall with <laughs> someone with, with some local neighbour boundary dispute to, to be resolved. I have to say, I've been, I've recently started re-watching The Thick of It from the beginning, again, because frankly, we've got the time. I know this is an, an original 
observation, but it is so good. And I think people remember the sort of standout moments of it. It is so yeah. worth going back and watching it from the very beginning because there's there's so much more in it in, in, than I remembered. And even though it's, you know, it's quite a long time ago now it first started, um, it's still so relevant. And the the scene when the minister is going to make an announcement and he can't make the announcement, so he has to cut, try and come up with something else, has all the hallmarks of every sort of brainstorming session that's ever happened in politics, yeah, even uh, to this day. And I, I remember that scene because a lot of the things they brainstorm have since been mooted as real policies. So yeah, there were loads. Like carrying a plastic bag. Well, we all carrying do a plastic that bag. Something and to do, animals in zoos. Yeah, the spare room um, database. Exactly. <laughs> they're all there. And they've all ended up happening in yeah. uh, real life. So thoroughly recommend going back to watch uh, the thick of it. And in the loop is Esther Weber's recommendation. Up next, we speak to Kevin Mayer, The Times' chief film critic. And he'll talk us through all of the other films we should and shouldn't be watching. So who better to discuss political films with than the Times chief film critic, Kevin Mayer? Kevin, thank you for joining us. Uh, no problem. Happy to be here, Matt. So, um, so we we I, I put out this appeal on Twitter, asking and in the Red Box Morning email, asking them to recommend their favourite political films. More than seven hundred entries. Shall I just talk you through the top ten first of all? Yeah, fire ahead. Yeah. Just as an immediate test, just give us a straight as one or two word review of these. You know, good or bad. Uh, okay, so, yes. uh, in eleventh uh, place was Doctor Strangelove. Hilarious. Ninth was The Death of Stalin. Oh, um, meaty, uh, meaty and deadpan, and, and yes, yes, perspicacious. Excellent. Eight, Election, which is the um, the Reese Witherspoon one. Riot. Uh, the Candidate. Uh, charming, sexy, and yes, political. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Uh, 13 Days. Oh, I love 13 Days. Um, just a, an unexpected delight, but um, yeah, a but but a clenchingly exciting too. Uh, and then, uh, finally, we're into the top five now. So, In the Loop. 
in the loop, obviously. You just you always knew it was going to be good. Ian Ducci at his best. Excellent. Uh, number four was Wag the Dog. Uh, underappreciated classic, although the fact that it's number four suggests it's not underappreciated. <laughs> Under, yeah, it's not underappreciated by the, the nerds who follow me yeah. on Twitter. Uh, number three was Primary Colours. Primary Colours, slightly disappointing because I felt it was defanged by the fact that it wasn't explicitly, literally about Bill Clinton. Oh, fine. So it was too subtle. Uh, yes. Uh, in number two, the Eads of March, which is obviously um, two of those, two versions of that that people could have been referring to. Yes, I'm imagining they're going for the Gosling Clooney version, which uh, is, yes, uh, lovely, witty and, um, yeah, uh, you know, toothy, teethy. <laughs> and finally, the, um, the standout winner, miles ahead of all the others, was All the President's Men. Yeah, you know, it's it's the definitive political film. When you said to me, think of political films, I was trying to be sort of pretentious and filming, oh yeah, the Battle of Algiers is obviously my favourite, but obviously the one that's screaming you in the face is all the president's men. It's just, um, I think it, it's the bar is set by that film. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, put forward a slightly controversial view that it's not really a political film. It's a really, really good film about journalism. Yes, no, that's totally true. Um, you know, the, the truism in all this is that the best political films aren't necessarily about politics. <laughs> you know, they're 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 tangentially about politics. Uh, the thing that um, struck me about the top ten, and actually, if you go right down through the list, the, the films which are more straightforwardly about politics. So, you know, your Darkest Hour, Iron Lady, Lincoln, that sort of stuff. You know, but essentially biopics, JFK, films yeah. about actual politicians are less popular than those that are slightly, you know, more one step removed. Yes. Now, this is the complete truth. Um Films that are, are sort of uh, handcuffed to very familiar reality are often less interesting. You know, the films that have the latitude to go off and do something uh, unexpected, and maybe films that adhere more to storytelling and drama are more engaging than the films that, oh God, we just have to, we have to trawl through Nixon's life, we have to do Lincoln, we have to do Malcolm X. You know, these, these aren't the most interesting films. The ones that are, you know, based on uh, stories that we have a sort of vague notion of, uh, but, the, but the filmmakers have freedom to sort of uh, wiggle about dramatically. I think they're the ones that often work the best. You know, my favourite political films are films like Syriana, you know, which clearly aren't based on real life, but kind of are. Uh, just outside the top 10 was Vice, which uh, yes. is about a real person. It's about Dick Cheney. But yeah. that's someone that certainly people in the UK probably didn't know a lot about. So you've, it's not as wedded to somebody doing an impression of George W. Bush and that sort of thing. I love Vice. Vice was sort of a Marmite movie. Um, yeah, I met Adam McKay who made it and co-wrote it and, and he stands by and says it's the most factually accurate. You know, that they had to have fact checkers on practically every scene in the film. So it's it's a weird hybrid where it seems um, so random, so many bits talking to camera, you know, so sort of off the cuff and yet completely based in truth. And uh, I, I yeah, I thought, it, again, I think that people didn't, you know, people were vaguely familiar with Dick Cheney. He wasn't like a totally, you know, random celeb that they didn't, knew nothing about. One that also came up an awful lot, I in fact, while we're speaking, I'm still getting emails from about Foss Nixon, which again, I'm you know, although clearly about a, a real politician and about politics, but the, I, th I think the reason people like it is because it's about the the journalism. Yeah, um, it's a journal, but it's also a great uh, dramatic head to head. You know, it's the USP is just two you know two big actors or two big characters facing off together. It's, it's a double a two hander. So um, I think all these films work when they've got something that isn't just 
hewing to the facts. You know, that's that's you know, there's a, a film that came out recently, Official Secrets about GCHQ, and you could watch that film and just feel how it wanted to go in one direction. It wanted to be a courtroom thriller, and yet it had to stick to the facts of what really happened in that case, and it was really dull because of it. So yeah, a film like Frost Nixon is just you know, beautifully written by Peter Morgan and, and a, a, a nice series of exchanges with, with real sort of dramatic jeopardy. Do you think it helps if if you are doing a sort of real life political story there's a bit of distance in time they're actually doing a i don't know a film that the deal came up a few times which yeah. is the the gordon brown tony blair thing you know if it's all a bit too if you spend too much time thinking well that's not a very good impression of tony blair well i'm not sure that totally happened well that's not those curtains aren't like and all that sort of stuff you don't lose yourself there's a bit if there is a bit of distance in time as you had with frost nixon you can sort of relax into it a bit more rather than than i mean certainly my problem with any film set in the house of commons is i keep thinking well that's not quite right uh, yes, you, you were totally right. It's very distracting to see somebody from the recent past. Even the special relationship with, with uh, Tony Blair and Bill Clinton, I, I found that quite difficult to watch. You know, um, it's it's you basically with I think with any movie, you don't fundamentally want to be snapped out of it with thoughts in your head about oh that really doesn't look like. Uh, although George W. Bush, you know, Josh Brolin as W, uh, I think he was strong enough for you to forget that it wasn't George W. Bush pretty soon into that movie. And what about, there were quite a lot of people recommended things which weren't politics in the sense of men in suits marched around shouting at each other, but are clearly political. So Milk came up an awful lot. Sean Penn playing the Harvey Milk. Um, yes. Clearly uh, is, politics. Yeah, well, they are, you know, films like Milk is political, Argo is political, obviously 13 Days with the Cuban Missile Crisis. You know, they aren't biopics. They don't feature the heavy hitters that we think of in terms of political ideas and political narratives, but they they definitely are political. In fact, I'd go further. You know, my favorite political films are like High Noon, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. You know, they... I love I love watching a film and and feeling the politics seeping through it without it being explicitly political. You know, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, it's either about conformism or commies. Um, you know, High Noon is about political dissent, you know, and yet one's a Western, one's a sci-fi movie, yet they're deeply satisfying as political films. Yeah, several people have suggested Planet of the Apes and Star Wars as being uh, political. I mean, I, I have a strong view on Star Wars being essentially films for children and I don't want to watch them. Uh, the One of the ones that... Um, uh, Nobody's mentioned, but I think I, I when I watched it, I felt the politics in it. it was Zootropolis, which I know is a children's cartoon. Wow, you, <laughs> that, that must have been a slow, a slow news day. You see, Tropolis. Um, wow. Okay, that is. Um, but then again, I don't know that you know. There's 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 arguments that everything is political. Obviously, yeah, in that's terms true. Of movies is it maintaining the status quo or deconstructing it? So. Zootropolis, uh, Zootropolis, what? It's like a country bumpkin animal becomes a super cop, isn't it? Sorry, yeah. Me. But then there's um, a, but then there's like, a, then there's a sort of um, everyone becoming very suspicious, and the it, it turns out there's a mayor who's, or it's not a mayor, it's someone else who's a sort of evil genius who's trying to play people off against each other. I, I remember just thinking there was there was the message from it was more political than you, or, or more there was more of a message than you sometimes get from kids' cartoons. Maybe, yes. maybe but, we but, should. But, but, isn't that really distracting though? I, I find that I found that with sort of. Watching Wally, 
you know, the Pixar movie where, uh, you know, all the human beings had become morbidly obese because they were sitting on, on the chairs watching screens. I, I find that distracting, when I, especially when I'm watching a kid's film and I go, God, here comes the politics. <laughs> you know, yeah, you even, even the, um, what was it, the Phantom Menace? Remember that, you know, the, the Star Wars prequels, they started with a big crawl, big, uh, you know, the, 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 the crawl at the start, the you know, trade wars and people, you know, com- companies were being overtaxed and they had banded together to you know, start a, a trade federation and, always really annoying when you feel that no one they're not doing storytelling first you know there's a message yeah that was in fact a couple of people did suggest uh phantom menace but yeah the idea of of watching a film in that being about trade deals uh that's that just sounds quite a lot like work to me um yes the other one that um i it really sticks in my mind in part it's because i watched it on a plane flying to washington was jackie which is right. a very political film and that it's all about Jackie Kennedy. And we were lucky enough after, when we got to Washington, we managed to get a tour of the White House. We ended up seeing all the rooms that she did up. But I mean, essentially, I suppose it's not really a political film. It's just a, a film about a woman who was married to a politician who happened to live in the White House. Jackie, that's that's a real left field one. I That was kind of trippy, though, that movie. It, you know, it seemed to it seemed to do everything... It, it seemed to be a sort of uh, internal character portrait, as they say, rather than a film that wanted to. I, I think they didn't. They sort of readdress the idea that maybe she was more powerful than we thought, and she was, you know, she was more of a player than than people actually uh, took her for. But my memories of that film were just thinking it was quite sort of internalized and trippy, and sort of uh, trying to articulate her grief state rather than you know giving us a real a juicy political look inside uh, the White House. So, of all the ones that we've talked about, if someone was thinking this weekend or basically at any time now because we're all stuck at home, what would be your sort of top three political films that should people should should have watched if they haven't already? And I suspect it'll turn out I haven't watched them. No, no, I, I, I feel really boring and conventional, but I have to say, wag the dog. Dog, for me, is up there. You have to watch Wag the Dog. I've not seen um, Wag the Dog, so this is on. This is going on my list. Okay, good. No, it's so good. It's just, it's, it's. I think it was like 1999 or 96, and it's, it's, it's weirdly prescient. It's kind of about fake news, you know. Uh, the president is having an affair, and it's, I think nine days left to the election, and it's what can we do to distract the public? And so they make a fake war in Albania, and it's just, it's, it's co-written by David Mamet, and it's just so wicked and so sharp about you know, the, the end game of politics and what people will do to get there. So it's, uh, yeah, I, I adore that film. <laughs> that feels quite on the money at the moment. Indeed, yes. Um, obviously, oh, you know, In the Loop, and I think I feel like most people have seen In the Loop. Yeah, if, you you, if you're remotely interested in politics and you haven't seen In the Loop, then you're not doing it properly. It'd be nice to go a bit left field, you know, not always, not, not always straight down the middle. Um, yeah, I'll go, go completely out there with, with, you know, try the Battle of Algiers. Okay. You know, the, the, the film by the Algerian War. I think it's nineteen. Is it nineteen sixty nine? It's a film, uh, you know, yeah, that yeah, fat nerds uh, like. Is that it's it, it was shown to the Pentagon in, in two thousand and three before the invasion of Iraq. You know, to prepare them for sort of you know, counterinsurgency and what happens when a, an army goes in you know, and faces. Uh, you know, um, ter- terrorism on the streets of a city. So. Um, I think it's it's it still stands up today. It's you know it is black and white. It's uh, obviously it's not an English language political movie about the White House, but it's um, it's potent stuff. That all sounds like excellent uh, advice. And any any anything that we've been talking about that was best avoided, anything that's particularly stinky. You know, this sounds pretty harsh, but I avoid all the biopics. Uh, okay. They're either compromised by the the makers' love or hate of the subject, and they end up 
like a Wikipedia page, having to hit certain beats, certain biographical beats that make for really dull viewing. You know, I know people like Nixon, you know, the, the, uh, JFK even. JFK is, is lucky because it, it hinges around a court case, and that's always more interesting. But even Lincoln was a bit of a troll. So, um, and the Iron Lady again, you know, just um, the Iron Lady was made not really about Thatcher. It was sort of... Um, uh, you know, neo-feminist slant on what Thatcher, what Thatcher actually did, and again, it's just um, I think steer clear of the biopic, steer clear of anything that has to that has to articulate too many facts. Uh, you, you just want you just want something that's uh, you know a compulsive story with with political mood. Uh, having um, told us to steer clear of the um, biopics, I was about to ask you who you thought had been the best Churchill because he's probably been the most projected um, ah, portrayed. No, that's good. No, um, I'd like to think it was Gary Oldman for Darkest Hour, but part of me can't help but feel that performance was aided so much by the look and by the prosthetics the oscar winning prosthetics that i really admired brian cox's churchill from 2017 uh, no makeup you know there was no attempt you know to sort of visually disguise him but he just he sort of it, it was a low budget movie they didn't have they didn't have any of the whistles and bells but um he sort of seemed to capture something just finally before i let you go what on earth is happening in the world of film how are you doing your job well so far amazingly a lot of distribution companies are chucking stuff online streaming it so um they're all at the moment we're in this weird space where there a lot of them are art house movies small movies um who don't have a lot to gamble and uh, they're putting them on places like curzon home cinema and so streaming streaming independent films so you know, every week there's a huge Hollywood movie, uh, maybe a, a not so huge Hollywood movie, and a load of independent movies. And what's happening at the moment, it seems, is most uh, of the independent movies are going for streaming services. And the big Hollywood movies are playing a waiting game. Some of them, like there's a kid's film called Trolls, uh, Trolls World Tour. They're, they're going to put that out streaming next week. Some of them, some of the movies who have just hit cinemas just before the lockdown started, they're going streaming. There's a Vin Diesel movie called Bloodshot that's been put on streaming. Uh, the Invisible Man update that's been put on streaming. So, um, my feeling is that the really huge movies like Marvel's Black Widow, they're just going to sit tight like Bond and wait till either the very end of the summer or maybe even autumn before they go out because they need to go out theatrically. They need to go out around the globe. They need to make you know up to upwards of a billion dollars to make their money back because they're so expensive. And you just at the moment can't make that, can't guarantee that from streaming services. Well, because also presumably you can't charge eight, ten, twelve pounds per person to watch it. Uh... Well, bizarrely, you know, you know, the, you know, the independence, uh, you know, last week, uh, Catherine Deneuve, Julie Binoche film called The Truth came out. That was a kind of prestige movie that was in Venice last year. And that, that's, that'll cost you eleven ninety nine to watch it on your TV or on your, your iPad. So there, the pricing is, uh, let's say, you know, euphemistically competitive, to say the least. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> Exit, Kevin, there's loads of stuff, loads of good stuff for people to uh, get their teeth um, and streaming services stuck into over the coming days and weeks and months. Who knows? Kevin Mayer there. Don't forget, you can vote for your favourite films in the Times Red Box World Cup of Political Films on Twitter on Friday, the 27th of March from 10 a.m., Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and give us a review. Loads of you have, and it's really nice to see all of your comments and let us know where you're listening. Uh, post a review on Apple or wherever you listen, and you can sign up to my morning email so you too can nominate your favourite political films in future. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box. But for now, my thanks to Kevin May and Esther Weber. From me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye.
Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.